reading today is Romans 11, 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Father, we thank you that it's all about you. It's all about your son, Jesus. And today, as we gather together to make much of you, Father, I pray that you would just draw our hearts in, that your Holy Spirit would do miracles in each and every one of us so that we can understand that this truth, that it's all about you and it has nothing to do with us, but because you are such an amazing God, you invite us in to your story to make much of your son in our lives. Lord, I lift up Kevin today as he comes to share, and I pray that you would just be with him, be with our hearts, open our ears, and open our hearts to understand and hear what you have to say. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Uh, If I can get um, the, the elders and their wives... Uh, to come up on stage here with me for a minute, and if I can also get my sister Kristen uh, to come up here as well. Uh, as some of you guys uh, n- may or may not know, uh, this is Kristen's last Sunday with us. So, um, so come on up here. Yeah, stand up here. So, <laughs> so uh, my sister hates things like this, but uh, we think it's important to honor people who have had an integral part. Uh, in the life of this church. Um, As you guys know, probably about two months ago, we celebrated uh, our church turning five years old, and that's a big deal. I mean, we're in kindergarten now, so that's exciting. And um, you guys may or may not know this. Some of you guys may or may not know the full story, uh, but uh, the original group of people that moved here to uh, help start this church, there was about 20 of us. And of those 20, there's about four of us still around. Uh, The Mondells, the Kreiners, my wife and I, uh, one of our kids, uh, Kristen, I think that's it. Am I missing anybody? Is that it? Yeah, that's pretty much it. So eventually we run everybody off apparently. Uh, but the reality is this, in a, in a city like Gainesville, we see a lot of turnover and Kristen's given a lot of time, a lot of energy. A lot of you guys have either been discipled with her, been in a community group with her in some uh, fashion over the last couple years. Uh, but she got married back in October. Yeah, I did the wedding. I should remember when that was, right? Uh, She got married back in October to a guy who lives in England and has been waiting, uh, thanks to governments, to get her visa. And she got her visa. So she's leaving on Tuesday to move to England so she can be with her husband, which I I can't blame her. She probably wants to do that. So anyway, we got you some gifts, Kristen. Um, We've got a card that a bunch of people signed. We've got, uh, we know that you can't take a lot with you because uh, of suitcases, so we didn't get you anything super exciting, but we got some journals, some pens, and then um, I'm sad that Derek's not here because he'd be really glad that we did this, but we want you to remember America (laughs) while you're there. So um, if you would please wear this (laughs) and take a picture when you get off the plane so that when Danny comes to get you, he'll remember um, that we beat his country sorry behind (laughs) to win our freedom. So I'm going to give this to you, um, but if we're, we're going to lay hands on you, so if you can come stand right here, we're going to pray for you, we're going to pray for your marriage, uh, and, and we just want to honor you and, and thank you for the time that you gave to this church. <sighs> Jesus, what a, a gift and an honor it is to just stand up here this morning and celebrate Kristen and the sacrifice uh, she gave to see this church started to see dozens of men and women come to know you as their God and their King, to disciple young women who were new in their faith, to be a faithful presence, not just in this church, but also as a nurse at Shands for the last six years. 
And Jesus, we're gonna miss her dearly, but we're so excited for the next season of life as she and Danny begin their family together and begin their life together in London. Lord, we pray that Kristen would make solid uh, friendships and bonds and, and her church as she moves to London. Uh, Lord, that you would remind her to use her gifts when she gets there and to serve you faithfully. And she has a leg up because she's gonna be in a country that speaks the same language as her, so that's nice as well. But Lord, most of all, I pray that there would be a deep abiding trust in you, both for her, for her husband, and for us as a church, as it's hard to say goodbye to someone who's so gifted and so talented and does so much for you here. So Jesus, thank you for Kristen. Thank you for uh, just letting us uh, be a part of her journey and sharing her with us for the last six years, Lord. And we pray uh, for all that you're gonna do in her life in the future. Thank you, Jesus, and thank you that all of this is possible because of you. We love you, and we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you, sis. <laughs> all right, that wasn't emotional at all, right? All right, so this is going uh, to be fun. Because we had that this morning, and that's not something we normally do, and that takes time. And uh, then, can I just, can I get a clap real quick? You guys don't know why we're clapping yet. Can I get a clap real quick? Because here's the thing. We've got four people stepping up to get baptized today. I'm really excited about it. Uh, and, and guess what? I also plan to teach the, all of chapter 11 this morning. You guys are never going home today. And I can't wait. This is going to be, like, I'm always sad when church is over, and today it's never going to end. So I hope you're ready. Uh, all, all kidding aside, I've cut my sermon down, I promise. I make no promises on how long it's going to be, but I've cut it down at least uh, from what it would normally be. But if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to uh, Romans chapter 11. Uh, we're going to do the whole thing this morning, so you guys better be ready. This is going to be um, basically like a 100-level class in college where you learn an entire uh, topic or subject matters worth of information in about three months, um, which is slightly absurd, but that's fine. And that's, what, that's the way it's going to be this morning in Romans chapter 11. So um, chapter 11, interestingly enough, guys, is one of those chapters in Scripture uh, that actually tends to cause theologians to kind of lose their, their minds at times. And uh, one of the, the reasons for that um, is because of the, the content matter and where it sits in position to chapter 9 and chapter 10. And I believe, though, that if you look at Romans chapter 11 inside the context of the previous two chapters, it'll start to make a lot more sense, okay? Uh, and so I'm going to attempt to get through these 36 verses today, um, but first I need to remind you, especially if you guys haven't been here with us over the last couple of weeks, just real quick snapshot of what we saw in chapter 9 and what we saw in chapter 10, because that's going to help make everything we're reading this morning make a lot more sense. So in chapter 9, right, we had Paul basically presenting to the church in Rome kind of this, this great thesis that God is sovereign. That means that, that God is king, he is in control, and he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's omniscient, he's omnipresent, he is all of these things, and that in light of that, he made this kind of grand statement that God shows mercy to whom he will show mercy, and he will display or act in justice on whom he will desires to have justice towards. And what, what that ends up being is that God is the one who decides who is saved, who is a follower of Christ, who spends eternity with him, and who is punished for disobedience and rebellion towards him because of their sin. He is in control, and basically, Paul kind of finished chapter 9 by saying, look, God is in control, and we don't get to question it. And by definition, if God is sovereign, 
and God is God, we have to give him that philosophical leeway. The problem is, is that most of the time, intellectually, you and I don't have a problem with the concept of God's sovereignty, but practically, we hate it. That practically, when God is not doing things in our lives the way that we want him to, we start pushing back. Oh, God must not be showing up. God must not be moving. God must not be acting. It's out of my control, but I don't like the way that God is running this thing. Is God really sovereign? And we have these issues with this. But what Paul ultimately wanted to get across to us in chapter 9 is that God is bigger than you and I. His ways are not our ways. His plans are not our plans. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Meaning that in the midst of both joy and seasons of sorrow, God is in the midst of those things, working them out for our good and his glory. And in his sovereignty, he is purposing these things out for the glory of the gospel, to make much of Jesus. As I shared with you guys way on back earlier on in Romans, that one of the best things that you can come to a realization of is that God is for God. He's not for you primarily. And because God is for God, that means both in low seasons and high seasons, all of it can be used to make God look glorious. And because God is sovereign, we don't get to dictate the terms of what things look like. And so, right, we've got chapter 9, and, and, and some of us, you know, I, I still, even as I'm up here preaching, I struggle with that tension. Like, I don't really, I don't like that. Right? I, want, I want to be in control. I, I want God to be sovereign when it's convenient for me. But what I really want is to be sovereign myself, and I want God to bend to my will, and he will not share his throne with me. He will not share his throne with you. And that is exactly what Paul is trying to get across in chapter 9. And so you're like, okay, all right, well, all right, God is crazy in control. And so the pushback on that and this idea of God's sovereignty from a theological standpoint then is, wait a minute, are you and I just robots kind of being bent towards God's will all the time. And so then, right, you have chapter 10. Right, and you move into chapter 10, and what Paul basically shares with us in chapter 10 is, look, you and I also have some responsibility. Number one, we have the responsibility to respond to the gospel. That if we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. Meaning there is something that we observe in the process of salvation, that no one is saved if that's not observed, that you and I do have some level of responsibility. We can argue theologically about God's role in the midst of all that, but the reality is, is that there is some level of responsibility taught in Romans 10. But not only is there responsibility for us personally to respond to the call of Christ and what he's done for us, but then the second responsibility that Paul lays on us, and I spent all last week talking about this, so if you missed church last week, go listen to the podcast, and if you're a member of this church, you had, and you weren't here last week, you had darn well better go listen to that podcast, because we had a family meeting here last week. And I, I let you guys know what is up. Right, that the call of God in the life of a believer who is involved in the church of Jesus Christ is one that is meant to be spent preaching the good news of what Christ has done to others. And that the responsibility that God has laid on his church, his bride, is to be a church that is sharing the good news of what God has done to those who do not know him. That is our responsibility. And it makes sense, guys, because here's the reality. If God is sovereign in election and in saving people, that means, therefore, you are not sovereign, meaning you don't know who the elect are. Right? I love Pastor Brad Bell. He's a church out in, uh, he has a church out in California. He always says this, guys, it doesn't matter where you sit theologically, but if you stand on the side of God's sovereignty and you understand election and what Romans 9 teaches, please remember this. People don't wear shirts with ease on their back so you know they're elect. 
Right? The reality is, is that you and I don't change our approach to ministry even though we know God is sovereign because we don't know who God has elected or not. We don't know who is saved or not. We don't know whom God is working in someone's heart or life at any given moment in time. And so the call on our lives then is that we get the privilege of sharing the gospel with everyone. And that in that privilege, it presents a fun scenario where we preach and we do ministry towards others as if it depends on us, but then we go to bed at night knowing ultimately it belongs to God. That you work and you pray and you share and you disciple as if everything depends on you, and then you go to bed at night and you hand it over to God because ultimately he's in control. And guys, let me tell you something. If you come to that realization, it is so liberating. Because you still get the privilege of being involved with the work of the body of Christ, and yet you don't have the responsibility of making things happen. Because you know ultimately it is up to God. Let me get, share with you guys a quick story, right? Uh, I, I came from a church in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and one of the things we used to do frequently is go door-to-door -door in apartment complexes and just invite people to church and share the gospel with them. And if you guys don't think that works, uh, meet me afterwards, and I'll take you to an apartment here in town, and I'll show you that it does. And one night, right, I knock on this door, and this guy opens the door, and he's got a bunch of roommates in there, and I'm with this guy named George Reed, and we're sharing with this this guy, he's a sophomore in college, and about probably like five or ten minutes into the conversation, his uh, roommates pick up on what we're talking about, and they're just making fun of him, they're making fun of me, not that I care, I mean, I made, I'm, look at me, I'm 5'5", five five. like I've been made fun of my whole life, like good luck, you know, get under my skin. But they're, they're, they're giving us a hard time, they're yelling all these things, and I kid you not, like 15 minutes into the conversation, condoms are flying out the door. I'm like, really? And so I'm thinking to myself, dude, this, there's no way this conversation is going to keep going. Like, you know, this is a disaster. You know, you know, I've got people throwing condoms at me. I've got them screaming and yelling things. This guy looks at us, turns around and says, be quiet, walks out, shuts the door, and continues to talk to us about God. Fifteen minutes later, he submitted his life to Christ. Never in a million years in that moment, would, if you had said, hey, Kevin, the, this, at, at the beginning of that conversation, this, guy's, this guy, God's doing something in his heart. He's going to come to Christ right now. And you're going to have condoms thrown at you. But this guy's going to come to Christ. Ne never in a million years would I have seen that. But you want to know what? I did, I continued to do ministry as if it depended on me, but then God came in and did the work. Because that's how ministry happens. And so we move into chapter 11 this morning, and here's what we're going to see. We're going to kind of see three kind of big overarching themes that are then going to bring us to the verses that Brent shared with us earlier, okay? Because Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 10 were ultimately rooted in this question of, hey, what about Israel? What about God's chosen people? Like, what happened to them? Like, why, why is... Why is the, the, the Roman Gentile world coming to Christ by the thousands, and yet Israel has rejected Jesus as the Messiah? What, what's going on? And so he talks about God's sovereignty in chapter 9. He talks about man's responsibility in chapter 10. And then when we get to chapter 11, he's going to share three things with us. Right, verses 1 through 10, he's going to say this. Israel has rejected the gospel for now, but not in total. And then as he moves into verse 11, verses 11 through 24, he's going to say that Israel's denial of Jesus is not final. And then as we move into verses 25 through 32, he's going to say God promises to still restore Israel. Okay, so look at verses 1 through 10 with me. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So, so right off the bat, right, Paul just asks the question that everyone is asking, well, what about Israel? Has God rejected them? 
Are they no longer his chosen people, right? We know he made the promise to Abraham way back in Genesis, but is Israel still God's chosen people? Has he rejected them? And Paul says, no, absolutely not. God hasn't rejected Israel. That's not how this works. And he says, here's how we know. And in verse one, he says, you can know on a personal level that God has not completely rejected Israel. Why? I'm Jewish. Right? Paul says, I'm Jewish. If God had completely rejected Israel, I wouldn't know Jesus as the Messiah. That on a, on a personal level, right, I come from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham. Here's how you know that God has not completely rejected Israel. Now, he, he shares first on a personal level, then he's going to share on a theological level. Right? Look at verse 2 with me. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Meaning, we talked about this all the way back in Romans 8 and then moving into Romans 9, but foreknowledge is this kind of this idea of God chooses to save whom he will save, or he chooses to love and have mercy on whom he will choose to have love and mercy. And so Paul is saying from a theological standpoint, there are some in Israel whom I have foreknown and they will be saved. They will respond to Jesus as their Messiah. They will come to know him. And God does not reject those whom he foreknew. That if someone is foreknown by God, if someone is of God's elect, you can't mess that up. And neither can Israel, even in their midst as a nation and a people who have rejected Jesus as the Messiah, can't mess up God's sovereign will in election. Okay, so he says, first you can know that God has not completely rejected Israel per personally because of me. You can also know it theologically because what I've taught you about God's sovereignty. And then lastly, he's going to share a biblical example. Look at the rest of verse 2 through verse 4 with me. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. What, what Paul is doing there is, that, hey guys, look, God's always operated this way. Right, and he shares a story from 1 Kings. I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with the prophet Elijah, but Elijah was a, a, a pretty, like, awesome dude. Like, he, he has this famous story, and you, you probably have read it in a children's Bible at some point in time, but he has this famous story where he goes up on the mountain with about, like, 60 or 70 prophets of Baal, and he just says, all right, we're going to see whose God is, is real or not. We're going to set up altars, and we're going to offer sacrifice, and whoever's sacrifice gets burnt up, that's who we know whose God is really the true God. And so he's sitting there, and the prophets of Baal are doing all these things, and they're dancing, and they're doing all these different things, trying to get their, their altar to light on fire, and nothing's happening. And, you know, Elijah, probably a lot like I would be, he's making fun of them. He's like, maybe your God's asleep. I, you know, I don't, I, I don't, where is Baal? I don't know what's going on. Maybe, I don't know why he's not showing up, but, you know, um, you know maybe he'll wake up later. I don't know. And then finally... Right, to put on God's power and glory on display. I love this. Right, Elijah gets up, walks over, sets up his altar, sets the wood up, then brings out a bunch of water and dumps a bunch of water on the wood, right, because nothing burns better than wet wood. And he steps back, and he's like, show up, God, and God goes, boom. Takes the sacrifice right then and there, and the people of Israel see God act and immediately fall on their face and begin to worship God again. And you see, you see this like super, like, m like huge moment of faith in Elijah as he steps out and kind of puts God's glory on the line. And then you fast forward a couple chapters, right? And Jezebel, right, starts coming after Elijah, right, stands up to him, and, and you know, Elijah runs off scared, and then he whines to God, like, everyone's after me, no one loves God anymore, even after all that we've done, no one loves God, right, and then God's response, 7,000 men are left who have not bowed down to Baal, because God always has a faithful remnant, always. If you don't believe me, read the Old Testament, Noah, faithful in the midst of an entire population 
in the human world that have rejected God. Joseph, sold into slavery by his own brothers, sent to Egypt, faithful in the midst of it all. Moses, leading the nation of Israel out of captivity, pointing them towards God. He goes up on the mountain and comes back down, and the guy he left in charge, Aaron, is leading them in worship of a golden calf. And yet, Moses remains faithful and points the people back to God. You can read in the book of Judges. You can read in the book of Kings of different kings who remained faithful and people that remained faithful with them, and even all the way up to John the Baptist, who was preparing the way for Jesus. If you read the scriptures consistently, you will see that God always has a faithful remnant, even when everyone else is denying who God is. Because that's how God operates. Now when you get to verse 5, look at what he says. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace, but if it is by grace it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. Just as God's God chose a remnant with Elijah. Right, what Paul is saying is that God is still choosing who will be the faithful remnant in Israel. But as always, it is on the basis of his grace, not Israel's performance. Otherwise, it's no longer grace. Right, I talked about that a couple weeks ago. Right, that, that God saving somebody is based upon his mercy. And if it's not God's choice, it's not mercy because he's obligated and it ceases to be grace and mercy. And God is doing that with Elijah and he's doing it now with Israel. And then you move to verse seven and look at what he says. What then Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Basically, Paul's saying this. Those who were elect in the nation of Israel have found salvation. The rest did not, and this was God's will. There was God's will for many in Israel to actually deny Jesus as the Messiah. There was actually God's will to save some, but not many. So, so the next question arises then, okay, so, so like a few are saved but not many. Well, wait a minute. The next question that's going to arise then, is there any hope for Israel? Well, look at verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. So, so, so what Paul is saying is, look, is there hope for Israel, or are they done as God's people? No, they're not done as God's people. They have, their, their rejection is not final. That their rejection currently is leading to salvation for the Gentiles, but it is not permanent. And so the question then kind of rises is, is how does the Gentiles' inclusion now into the promises that Israel had in light of Jewish rejection work? How, how does my, my family line, northern, European, bark-worshipping, fire-breathing, who knows what they were doing at this time, how does our inclusion into the family of God work in relation to Israel's rejection? Right, look at verses 17 through 24. He says this, But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If 
you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. I'm going to explain all this in just a second, I promise, but he's using a horticulture example here to describe how this works. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note, then, the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So, like I said, Paul's using a horticulture example to describe what is happening here with Israel and the Gentiles. Okay, and here's the first thing he's saying. He says, the Gentiles do not replace Israel. Right, there's an entire theological viewpoint called replacement theology, and it is unbiblical. They've apparently never read these verses that I just read to you. But we do not replace Israel if you are a member of the church, the body of Christ. We're, we're, not, in relation, we're not in replacement of Israel. We don't replace the promises to Abraham or to David. We are a part of them. Meaning that you and I are partakers back to even the original covenants given to Israel because we've been, as Paul says here, grafted in. Now if you don't know anything about grafting, here's what grafting is. Grafting and budding are horticulture techniques used to join parts from two or more plants together so that they appear to grow as one single plant. And in grafting, the upper part of the plant is usually a, a bud from some tree or a plant that's not doing well. And what, it's, what happens is in the budding process, a bud is taken from one plant and grown onto another. Now, I'm no great gardener. So I don't know exactly how this works perfectly. But I do know that the reason it's done is to help grow something stronger from the main root system. So, so the way that this might work is that you take a plant that bears fruit but doesn't grow well in a particular region and you place the bud of that plant into a plant that does grow well in a particular region so that you can grow that plant there. You take what's not going to take root well in particular soil in a particular region of the world and you graft it into a plant that does grow well in that particular region so that the root system from the plant that grows well will support the other plant. And what Paul is saying is, look, Kevin, your family lineage is one that worshipped pretty much anything other than God. You have no support system, no root system, you don't know anything. The Jews, however... They have the law, they have the prophets, they have the, the wisdom literature, they have the, the fathers of the faith and the patriarchs, they have the temple worship, they have all this support system in worshiping the true God. And, and God, instead of restarting everything, he takes you and your family and grafts you in to the support system that's already there. And you don't replace the system that's already there. You're grafted into it to enjoy it so that you might grow, honor, and worship Jesus. Notice how he says there that I don't support the root system. The root system supports me. Meaning, just to get on a soapbox here for a minute, anti-Semitism is anti-Christian. Right? If you ever come across something anti-Semitic, it's not supposed to be associated with followers of Jesus Christ. Because the reality of what Paul teaches is, is if you aren't culturally Jewish, you're grafted into the heritage and the lineage that God had for his chosen people. 
And so to be anti-Semitic is to be anti-God. And I just want to throw this out there because I know it is still something we see sometimes. Jesus was Jewish. Uh, that's hard. I know that's hard for some people. But Jesus was Jewish. If you read the Gospels, who did Jesus and his disciples go to first? The Jews. When you read the Great Commission, they go to the Jews first and then who? The Greeks. If you read the book of Acts, where's the first place Paul goes anytime he goes into a new city? A synagogue. Why does he go to a synagogue? Because there's Jews there. Right? That the reality is, is that God has constantly right, been reaching out to his people. And even though their rejection is occurring now, it is not final and it is not permanent. And that you and I grafted in to the root system, get to honor God, but we don't get to act like we've done something special. We don't get to become puffed up with pride. It is by God's grace and mercy to us that he performs a miracle on you and I and grafts us into his promises. His promises to Israel, guys, were not to my ancestors. They weren't. And yet, I'm grafted in because God does what he wills. And I love what he says in verse 23. Remember this. If God grafted me, as he says there, a wild olive branch into the real root system of the true olive tree, how much more so will he graft back in natural branches? Paul's speaking prophetically. He's saying, look, Israel is going to be grafted back in at some point. Israel's rejection of Jesus as a whole is not final. It's temporary. Now, when you get to verse 25, he's going to go further into that future promise of restoration for Israel as a nation. Look at what he says in verses 25 through 27. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. All right, so here's what he's saying. A partial, a partial hardening has occurred now, meaning many will reject and deny Jesus as the Messiah until what? The fullness of the Gentiles has occurred. That word fullness carries this idea of completeness. So let me, let me try as best I can, to the best of my understanding, describe this to you. This means that there are a certain number of people appointed to eternal life. And I don't know how many that is. And to be honest, I'm not really interested in knowing how many that is. But there will come a time in human history where someone's going to get saved, and boom, that's it. Now, let me, let me pause here for a second, because I'm starting to get into eschatology, and I need to just say something. There are three major views on eschatology. Right? And because we tend to have a grammatical and historical view of the Bible, we, we tend to lean in one direction. It's called the, the historic amillennial position. Not what you read in the Left Behind series, but something similar to that, but more biblical. Okay? There are two other views here. One's called amillennial. Excuse me, I said we're premillennial. We're not amillennial, excuse me. There's another view called amillennialism and postmillennialism. Now here's the thing. You can hold whatever view you want if you're convinced by the truth of Scripture. And I don't talk about this a ton because the only thing we need to really agree on is that Jesus is coming back. But as we see the text here, right, it's going to play in line with some things that I think are true about what God promises when you move into Revelation chapter 6 through 19, a period called the tribulation. And what's going to happen? And if we understand this in light of what we see in Romans chapter 11, that there's going to come a point in time where the Gentiles have come to know Christ, have embraced him as the Messiah, and then boom, 
Right, this period called the tribulation is going gonna, is gonna to happen. There's some people that believe that Christians are not going to be around for that, that there's going to be this, uh, this event called the rapture beforehand. I don't hold to that position. If you're a Christian, I think you're still going to be here if that happens in our time here. Sorry, I hate to break it to you. It's going to be brutal. But there's going to be this period of, of, of tribulation, and that is what God is going to use to call Israel back to himself. Now, for those of you guys that don't hold the same position as me, it's fine. I'm right and you're wrong. And it's going to be okay, and we're going to experience that one day. But the reality is, is that in the midst of all of this, right, what we see here is that there is an, an appointed number, and then God is going to act on behalf of Israel. That's what he's saying in Romans 11. That there's an appointed number of Gentiles, but in the midst of this, then God's going to act. And when you get to verse 28, look what he says. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. I mean, because of God's promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, God still cares about Israel. And there's a faithful remnant there because of his promises to them. For the gifts and the calling of God are what? Irrevocable. Meaning you can't mess up God's plan. You can't mess up his will. You can't mess up what he's doing. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so too have... So they too have now been disobedient in order that by mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. And we say this all the time, but what makes God's grace look so beautiful is that you and I don't deserve it. And in our disobedience, God showed grace and mercy to us. And in Israel's disobedience, God's going to show grace and mercy to them as well. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. God's mercy is big in the midst of Gentile and Jewish disobedience. Okay, so I want to bring this in for a a landing this morning. Okay. So we've got chapter 9, God is big, God is sovereign. Chapter 10 you and I still have a responsibility. We have a role to respond to God and to be a part of the mission of the church, sharing and proclaiming the gospel to others. And then chapter 11 is God is faithful and keeps his promises to Israel. God is faithful. And that is why when you read these last four verses, In Romans chapter 11, you see Paul after just, I don't know if you guys, your heads are hurting a little bit after reading everything we just read in chapter 11. I know we did it fast. But Romans 9, 10, and 11 are extremely heavy and difficult portions of Scripture to wade through. And yet look at how Paul finishes chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. As he finishes three chapters of difficult theological content with what? Worship. Because that's what all of this is designed to do. That's why we're here. If you walk out of here remembering nothing about what God's going to do with Israel, but you remember to worship God, then it was successful. Because the reality is that all of this is meant to magnify and make much of Jesus. And we worship because we can know him. We worship because we can't repay him. We worship because by him and through him and to him are all things. There is none like him. That the God of the universe 
who created us in his image and likeness and then had to experience the rebellion and rejection of the human race who said, I don't care that you created us. I don't care that you've promised to be with us and walk with us and be our God. I want to be my own God. And in our sin and stiff-neckedness and pride, we deny God's sovereign place as creator of the universe. And we, we rebel. We do the same thing that our father Adam did. And we deny God his rightful place, which is ultimately a place of worship and honor. And instead, we rip him off the throne and stick ourselves there in, in his place. And we walk through our lives, right, trying to build our own kingdom and build up our own images of who we are and worship ourselves. And we might have relationships and we might do good things for other people, but we do it all for our own glory. And then God in his mercy, he sees that. And he sees us in our rebellion. And he says, there's none. There's, no, there's not one who's good. And in his sovereign will, he chose to send his only son to have him put on human flesh, to live a perfect life, and then to suffer at the hands of wicked men and women and be crucified. And as Jesus went to the cross, it was God's perfect will and plan for him because as Jesus hung for the, from the cross, he wasn't just suffering religious persecution. He wasn't just suffering from political issues. He wasn't just suffering because his disciples had turned their back on him. He was suffering the full wrath of God for your sin and my sin and rebellion. And as he hung there on the cross, even his father turned his face away and poured his wrath on Jesus. And that's why Jesus cries out, my God, my God, you have forsaken me. Because he finally knows what it's like to have the father's wrath poured out and directed towards him because he's taken on your sin and mine. And as he takes on that sin, as he breathes his last, he cries out, it is finished. And he's crying out to you and to I, your sin is paid for. Your rebellion is done. God's wrath is no longer pointed at you because Jesus has paid the price. And then Jesus was buried and the grave couldn't hold him. And three days later, he got up out of that grave the stone was thrown away, and he rose to prove that he had defeated sin and death once and for all. And that in him, in him alone, can you be forgiven and reconciled to God and brought to new life. Only in Christ. And whatever the theology is, leading up to how all that works in the life of each individual person who responds to that gospel call that Jesus died to you. Confess your sin, repent of it, and believe in your heart that Jesus is who he said he was, and confess with your mouth him as Lord, and you will be saved. Whatever the theological process of Romans 9, Romans 10, and Romans 11 is for someone as they respond to that, you're ultimately brought to one place. Worship. Because it's only by Jesus and through Jesus, and to Jesus, that you are saved. There is no other. May you worship him. He saved you so you could worship him. We're going to take communion here in just a minute. And I, guys, I tell you this all the time. Communion is for people who identify as believers and followers of Jesus. So if you're not a follower of Christ this morning, I ask that you not take communion, not because we don't want you to enjoy the partially stale bread or if you're gluten-free, the gluten-free crackers that we have for you. It's not, a, I, I, I will buy you lunch if you're that hungry. But communion is designed as an act of worship for someone who is 
believed upon Christ for their salvation. And as you come up and take communion, I would invite you to sit there and pray for a moment and repent of any sins. And then come up and take communion, not penitently or reservedly because you're in sorrow over your sin, but rejoicing because Jesus has died and paid for that sin already. Communion is an act of worship unto God for what he has done. Guys, we gather on Sunday morning for one reason, to worship God. We gather throughout the week for one reason, to worship God. You should be getting up in the morning for one reason, to worship God. And we take communion to worship God. And rejoice that it is because of Christ all of this is possible. And then guess what, guys? We're going to sing a song. And then we're going to rejoice even more because some people are going to share some stories about how Jesus has forever changed their eternity. And we're going to worship again. And then we're going to sing another song and we're going to worship again. And then you're going to leave here and you're going to go have lunch and hopefully you're going to worship again. I don't know what you're going to eat, but hopefully it's going to taste good and you're going to worship God because guess what? God created good food. And then if you're like me, you're going to hopefully, amen. <laughs> and hopefully you're going to be like me, and you're going to go home and take a nap. Amen, thank you. And you're going to worship God because rest is good. Some of you students need to learn to go to sleep at night. Rest is good, it honors God. Worship him, go to bed. And then I'm going to get up from my nap, and I'm going to hang out with my kids, I'm going to love on them, and I'm going to hang out with my wife, and I'm going to worship God because I get to be with my family. Guys, life is worship. Do it unto him. Let's pray. God, there is none like you. And God, though, Israel's rejection may be partial now, and there are probably people in here that are not culturally Jewish and have still rejected you. Their rejection does not have to be final either. Because if we believe in our hearts in what Jesus did and confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. Father, if there's anyone in here this morning that does not know you as God and Savior, Lord, I pray that they would submit to you as their God and their King. They would confess their sin, repent of it, and turn to you. And Jesus said that the rest of us that do already know you as our God and King in here, that we would worship you because you are worthy. Because by you and through you and to you are all things. Father, thank you for your word. May we continue to magnify and exalt you and worship you in this time. And I ask this all in Jesus' name.